would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Psalms. We will be in Psalm 50 today, and the sermon notes, I know, will be a help to you as we move along here. Um, Just a word about all of this. We are stepping out of our study in Isaiah for a few weeks here uh, for a number of reasons. One is, every year at Thanksgiving time, I, I really like to take a Sunday to talk about Thanksgiving, not just as a holiday, but it's one time in the year when we can think about Thanksgiving in a broader way as a spiritual discipline, theologically driven, but I think it's a, it's a good thing for us. And then after this, for four weeks, the four Sundays of Advent, it is our uh, pattern and rhythm here in ministry to step out of whatever series we're in to preach the four Sundays of Advent. Those four sermons tie into the content of our Christmas program presentation Those of you who are newer will want to know that we are on a seven-year cycle, touching on seven major issues in the story of redemption. We're on our second time through. We're in number six. So you'll get more of an explanation of that next week in the bulletin, but um, the four sermons tie into that theme every year as we teach uh, the story of redemption from all of the Bible. So that means today we get to think about issues of thanksgiving and... um, so we're going to step into a psalm, and I want to tell you just a bit of background and then some reasons why, but I want you to think with me, first of all, about Thanksgiving in terms of its American heritage. And uh, a year ago, I read a book called They Knew They Were Pilgrims by John Turner. Uh, John Turner is, what is he here, professor of religion at George Mason University, and this is a scholarly work well-documented, that looks at the people who came as pilgrims, not those who came to Jamestown and some of the other ventures, those who came as religious pilgrims, and it traces their journey. Uh, it's, a, it's not you know, easy before you go to bed reading unless you want to go to sleep, uh, meaning it's, it's meaty and long. Um, but, but a number of things struck me. I read it a year ago and then picked it up again this week. As you think about the history of the holiday, Thanksgiving, the heritage. Uh, First of all, let me say, when we think about people coming to America, I'm well aware of the rethinking of history that we are doing in these days, and uh, colonialism and all those things, not even my purpose to talk about today. You You can worry about that on your own time. But for me today, I am looking at some of the the character qualities of those who came, okay? So think back with me, uh, 16... 1621 is what we would identify as the first meal that was something like a Thanksgiving-ish event, okay? Which, if I do my math correctly, that's 400 years ago this year, okay? That's kind of cool. Now, the group arrived in the fall of 1620, November, They were nearly out of provisions. They got a late start. There's a whole story about that. More had intended to come, boat problems. You don't want to sail across the Atlantic if the boat is not seaworthy. And so they got got a late start. And then it ended up getting here in early November of 1620. It's winter back east. The provisions on the boat were about gone. Approximately 100, eh, maybe 104 is what I've read in different places, People got off the boat, pilgrims, those who wanted to worship God according to the dictates of their conscience and the word of God as they understood it. So about 100 of them got off the boat and 
And the, the difficulties of the ocean voyage were now compounded by lack of food, um, shelter. Nobody had left the light on for them, you understand. Uh, there's no place to live. You're, you, there's no harvest for at least a year. You're in deep trouble. And that began a season of want and suffering and hunger and death. Of that original 104, 50% died that first year. How would you like something with a 50% mortality rate in a year? Okay, that's striking. Now, I look here in the book, and he describes the way this worked. He said death mounted as the winter months progressed, eight in January, 17 in February, a dozen others in March. By then, barely half of the passengers remained alive. The living were scarcely able to bury the dead. Many were surviving on a small handful, what you'd call corn nuts, parched corn, uh, barely even that. Every day, that's your food for today, for weeks. No wonder they starved. Uh, too weak to hunt. Um, just a, an awful time. So you gather for Thanksgiving. How was your year? I'm thinking about those folks and, you know, their first year, they didn't know they were starting a pattern. They didn't say, hey, let's start a new American holiday. Um, it was, 16, uh, six, let's see, 1623, I'll comment on it tonight, uh, that there was a kind of a proclamation like, hey, we should do this more often, that kind of thing. Um, but that first one, where you gather and you eat and you say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your care. Half of us are dead. In some cases, whole families have died. Mom, dad, and all the kids. As many graves as there are living. Thank you, Lord, for your care. I'd like you to think with me about that. Not to minimize the things you face. I'm well aware that in this church family, there are struggles. I, 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 I do understand that. This year has been hard for many. Some are grieving the loss of loved ones. Some have been through surgery and illnesses and all kinds of trials. There are, given the nature of the world and the nature of the human heart, there are more struggles in virtually every kind of relationship that can be imagined present in our church. It's us. It's us. We're people. Okay? And so it's time to, think, to, to, to say thank you, Lord. And I would encourage you, not as some perhaps that would say, just leave all those difficulties aside. And, and no, don't leave all those difficulties aside. You bring them. You bring them all. And you come before the Lord. And you say, Lord, help me, help me here with all these problems and help me to practice the spiritual discipline of thankfulness. Well, we want to think about that today because I believe that often we are very emotionally thankful. That is, we wait on our emotions to feel good and then we're thankful. And I, I think the scripture calls us to a theologically driven thankfulness that maybe goes beyond our emotion of the day. All right. I want to look at Psalm 50. So excited about where we're going to go today. I think it'll be a really good time in God's word. I'd like to pray and ask God's help for us as we do that. If you would join me, please, as we pray together. <clears throat> Our Father, with great joy, we come to your word. As always, counting on the help and work of the Holy Spirit within us as believers to focus on the word of God and to hear it aright and then to, to, to understand how to apply what is here. So give us spiritual ears to hear and eyes to see 
I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 50, uh, before I read it, and I'm going to read the whole text, I want to tell you what I'm going to do with it today as you join me in this. I'd like for us to to go through the text twice. It's a different type of an approach to, to a sermon, I realize. Kind of a flyover twice, looking at different things, okay? So the first time through, as you see here, I'd like to think about the text itself, its structure, and the the key issues that are being addressed in the text. And then on the second fly-through, I want to look at four truths about God. I call them here four reasons to worship him. So just looking at four theological statements about God. So that's the approach I want to take today. Now, before I read as well, I'd like you to, to pay attention to this. Uh, Psalm 50 is unique in that a large part of it is spoken first person from the voice of God. Many of the Psalms are Psalms like written, let us give thanks, let us come before. So it's, it's us talking. Much of this Psalm is first person, God saying, I'm saying to you. All right, so that's kind of important. And as I read, I'll try to call out the differences. You'll hear it in the the pronouns that are used. He says, he says, and then I say. So you'll notice a shift of voice back and forth, okay? Now, one other thing I want to say before I read this. Psalm 50 is intended to be a corrective to us as, as the people of God, as inhabitants of planet Earth, a correction to our view of God. And I... We'll read this in a moment. Psalm 50, verse 21, is a really important verse because it speaks to the human condition. Uh, God says, these things you've done and I have kept silent. You thought I was one like yourself. You thought I was like you. And that is what we tend to do. Maybe you said words like this yourself, maybe not even thinking. Well, in my opinion, God is like. Or I like to think of God as... And to the degree it corresponds with Scripture, we may be accurate, but sometimes people say things like, I like to think of God as like uh, on a fluffy cloud. Well, okay, Uh, you may like to think of God that way, but that may not correspond at all to reality. Okay? So the Scripture speaks to us of what God is like. The Scripture doesn't just say, how would you like to think of God? Oh, go for it. You can just make it up. Well, no. God says, I'd like to correct the way you view me. Because to think of God as other than what he is, like if you make it up, is to say you are wrong in your view of God. So I'd like to think of God, in my humble opinion, God is like, oh, be careful. Be very careful as you say things like that. God says, I will correct you. I'm going to rebuke you for this. So a humanized view of God. So I want to read Psalm 50, verses 1 to 23, and then move through it twice. And we'll look together then at the word of God. God's word then as I read it. A psalm of Asaph. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. 
Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes, or take my covenant on your lips. For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought... I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. And to one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. God's word. Wow. Psalm 50, strong, strong, powerful words. So then our first trip through the text under the heading, God cares deeply how we worship him. To, to help us out here, I want to draw an analogy that, that I think is in some measure alluded to in the text. You, you think about that. I see this as a courtroom scene. And to use modern uh, terms, I think verses one to four are spoken by the bailiff. The heavenly bailiff, you understand. It's a narrator, at least. And you picture this, if you've ever been in a courtroom setting, hopefully as a juror or an observant, but not necessarily. We have a broad church family. We have all kinds of experiences here among us. But you know, so the bailiff calls out then, the mighty one, God, the Lord. What does the bailiff say in a courtroom? All rise. What do you do? You rise, and you quit talking about lunch. You stop your conversations about whatever it is. Silence. Why? Some guy walks. No, no. some lady. No, hold on. Who is it? It's the judge. Wearing robes that stand for the rule of law. So at that point, this isn't, you know, Mary. This is Judge Mary. It isn't just Bob. It's Judge Bob. It's the judge. And if you've ever been there, you know there's, it's a moment of, of let's pay attention here. Because that person has a gavel and can say things and command and send somebody to jail or find you in contempt of court. You can step out because you're talking too much. So this is the moment. The bailiff, so to speak, courtroom, heaven above, earth as its floor. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth. Who is summoned? Y'all, come. He has the right to do it. 
the judge speaks. Out of Zion, Jerusalem, the people of God. The perfection of beauty, God shines forth. It's announcing him. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. And then I think the voice of God, gather to me, come. And then verse 6, kind of, I I think the last statement of the, the bailiff, if you will. The heavens declare his righteousness. This is a righteous judge, for God himself is judge. Be seated, please. Okay, do you, do you, you feel this? I think that's the tone of Psalm 50. Now there are two charges that are brought against God's people, brought by the judge. I'm accusing you of this, and I'm accusing you of this. So what are these? Well, the courtroom's danger number one, accusation number one, whatever you want to say, charge number one. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. Israel, I'll testify against you. I am God. Okay, let's talk about these sacrifices you're bringing. They've read the Old Testament. These are Old Testament believers. The sacrifices, as you know, I trust, pointed ahead to Jesus. Those sacrifices are not needed anymore because Jesus died on the cross, fulfilling all of those sacrifices. Old Testament sacrifices, for the most part, were, they were intended to pay for sin, to cover it, rather. Cover sin until Jesus could come and pay for it once and for all. Okay? So those sacrifices have been discontinued, not because of neglect, but because that to which they pointed has been fulfilled. Christ has come and died on the cross. But speaking in that context... God says to them, you're faithfully bringing all of these sacrifices, but I smell a problem here. And he's looking at the human heart. I'm not going to rebuke you because you don't bring sacrifices, because you do. But there's something going on in your heart. It's like you're bringing these things, thinking these things, thinking that I need them, maybe checking off the, the little bullet point list. Well, you said bring sacrifices. Here they are, God. And God's saying, wait, hold on, hold on. Are you thinking that I need this, what you're bringing? Do you think that I need your billy goats? Is that what you think? I need some lambs here? Oh, time out, time out. No, that's not it. You're forgetting something. I own all of it. I own all of it. All the animals, everything you're going to bring me, thanks very much. I already own it. Some of you know the old hymn, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth of every mine. He got it out of this. Somebody read their Bible, wrote a poem, turned it into a song. That's where it came from. Yeah. God says, I really don't need your animals, but I need you to bring them. Sometimes God asks us to give, not because he's got to have it, like, boy, I'm out of money, but because God knows that you need to separate yourself from that. You need to give it. Isn't that interesting? Well, in this context, uh, God isn't saying you're not bringing the sacrifices they are, but he's looking at the heart attitude and says, hold on, you're thinking, I think, that you're, you're, you're doing me a favor here, verse 12. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. The world in all its fullness is mine. Do you think I'm hungry? Verse 13, do I eat the animals you bring? Do I eat the flesh of bulls? Do I eat ribs? No, I don't think so. Drink the blood of goats? Not so much. I put on your study notes here this charge, number one, danger, number one. Ever since the Garden of Eden, humans have tended to to reduce a relationship to God to external practices. Maybe, Maybe you do that. 
even in being here today. You think about the differences of religions in the world. People talk about comparative religions. May I enter that discussion for a moment? World religions across the board are about what you do. You appease a god, a, a deity, or a whole bunch of them. You, you, you try to ingratiate yourself to God. Uh, you try to do good things. You try to be nice. You try to swear less, um, give money to good causes, Um, you know, help your fellow man, all hoping that someday God, if he's really there, will look kindly upon you. It's about doing, doing enough. Some of us have been in other parts of the world where down the sides of the street, there are little altars and people are supposed to put a rock or any coin they have in their pocket. Why are they doing that? You're trying to earn something. I hope this one, I hope this little God will like me today, because if not, I'll get a flat tire. It's because I didn't appease the God of tires. Not making that up. You got to do, and you got to do, and you got to keep doing, and hope that you did enough, said enough prayers, took the right pilgrimage. Uh, come on. In, in, in great contrast to that, Christianity is not about doing, it is about something that has been done. That is Christ has finished his work on the cross and paid for our sin so that we, instead of trying to earn favor with God, come to him completely unable to earn favor with God. We're broke, fresh out, let me say. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I bring nothing. I have nothing to give. But I come in simple faith, believing that Jesus died on the cross for my sin and casting myself on his mercy, saying, oh God, I I trust your sacrifice in Jesus to be the payment for my sin. Christ is my only hope. It's about what Christ has done, not about what I do to earn it. So it could be said, world religions are spelled D-O. Christianity could be spelled D-O-N-E, done what Christ has done. So here in this paragraph, I think God is correcting that. You're going through all your sacrifices, but there's something missing in your heart. And you're thinking you, you're, you're, you're helping me out. You're doing me a favor. Oh no, it's not about what you do. And then he calls them out a corrective here in verses 14 and 15. Rather, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Not just about the goats and the cows and things, but, but a heart response. To read the Bible from beginning to end is to see that, that the whole time God is after a heart of response from his people. He's never given you a punch list. You know that? Here, do these 10 things, you get to go to heaven. Perfect. No, it's always, even in the law, about a heart that responds in faith to the God who is. See? That, that's, that's how the Bible speaks about God and what God is correcting here. So charge number one, danger number one, externalism. God gives me a list. He says, you want to go to heaven? Here's 12 things, 30 things, 500 things. Actually, the list is longer than that. It's got one thing on it. Not, not a long list. It, it, <laughs> the list is be perfect. All the time. Okay, go ahead. And if you're smart, you won't even leave the room. You'll say, I've already blown that. Which would be true. Which would be true. Broke. You mean, so I can't even do the punch list to go to heaven. You're right. 
You're right. What you need is the righteousness of Christ. That's what you need. You need a savior. You need a redeemer. That's why you need Christ, you see. Verse uh, 16. Charge number two, danger number two. Ever since the Garden of Eden, humans have rebelled against God. Look at how verse 16 begins. To the, to the wicked, God says. Isn't that striking? He doesn't say the misunderstood. To those who need a hug, God says. No, this is moral language. He calls it wicked. To the wicked, God says. We'll comment more on that in a minute. To the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and cast my words behind you. Okay, what's going on here? The the wicked who are being addressed here are those who hide behind religion. They hide behind religion and their hearts are far from God. Can you imagine? They hide behind religion to practice vice. Now, sometimes that is uh, made public and it shows up in the newspaper and people say, look, they, look, at those, look at those church people. God sees it wherever else it is. Where there is a front of religiosity. Go to church, carry a big Bible, smile a lot. Act like, you know, one of the good people. And a heart that is evil. A heart that is its own God is really what it comes down to. A heart that says, you know, God, not going to really do it your way. I'm going to do it my way, but I'm going to go to church enough to where people think I'm one of the good people. Wow. It's a heart of rebellion. So externalism, a heart of rebellion here. To the wicked, God says, wow. If you see a thief, you kind of congratulate him. Man, that's not good. You give your mouth free reign for evil. Oh, probably not in church. Maybe on social media or at work or some other place. You use your mouth for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You speak against people. Wow. Danger number two. Now, the correction, of course, comes in verse 21. You thought, God says, you thought that because I didn't react immediately that I was like you, just just ignoring it all. You thought I didn't see You thought that I approved of your behavior, the fact that God did not immediately address you. You thought you were getting away with it. You thought God didn't care. God says, oh boy, today's the day. I'm going to correct this. You'll see. You'll see. Now, moving quickly to verses 22 and 23 then, to to wrap up this first flyover, God, the judge, calls for a heart and life Response. First of all, he addresses those whose hearts are far from him, in fact, living in rebellion. So he says, mark this, verse 22, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Man, does that sound, I mean, pretty clear? Tear you apart. Is there a nicer way to say that? Not really. Not really. It's kind of like the person who rolls up his or her sleeves against God and says, I really don't need you. This is the flea on the back of an elephant picking a fight. I really don't think I need you. I don't like your ways. I think I'm smarter than you. I don't even know if you're really there. Those are words of rebellion. And God says, you know, on the, if, if, unless that posture changes on the day that you stand before me, it's going to go very poorly. Verse 22. The Bible speaks of the judgment of the wicked. Do you know that? Judgment of those who have rejected 
Jesus. Sometimes people say, well, the wicked, sure, but that's not me. Well, actually, in the Bible, to reject God's offer of his son, Jesus, to, to reject his offer of forgiveness is wickedness. How about that? You don't have to kill anybody. Rob a bank to be in that category. All you have to do is reject God's offer of his of forgiveness in Jesus, and you are in that category. No, that's true. Wow. Should be sobering. Verse 23, then, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice, that is a heart response, glorifies me to the one who orders his way right. I will show the salvation of God indeed. God speaking of those whose hearts are right with him. So I'm saying under this first heading, God cares deeply how we worship him. And he calls a courtroom scene to make that point. Now, I want to shift to that next section. Fly over number two, and I want to call out four things about God, four reasons to worship him. If you are into theological categories, this moment is theology proper, meaning the doctrine of God. And I want to say four things from this text about what God is like. And these are corrections to our frequent view, our common view of him. So I'm going back to verse 1. I love this announcement from the bailiff. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks. Which is, by the way, as we'll see in a minute, an act of mercy. The fact that he speaks at all is mercy. The mighty one, God the Lord. That's announcing the judge. So with, with different words, in case you miss it. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks. Wow. God opens the courtroom scene here by announcing himself. There's only one other place in the Bible I'm aware of where that that precise formulation exists. Only one. And it's in Joshua chapter 22. And if you know your Bible history, this is the moment of settling the promised land. Two and a half tribes are on the other side of the Jordan River. The others are on the uh, on the west side. And the, the group on the other side build a, a kind of an altar for worship. And the people on the other side go, they're going to worship a false god. Let's go get him. We can't have any of this. That's sin in the camp. And they get all the, call up the army to go get those guys. And there's a little meeting about this. And there's a moment when the two and a half tribes on the other side defend themselves. And they begin with those words. They say, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. Isn't that amazing? He knows. He knows. That's their assessment. That's how they begin their their defense. The mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. Boy, for people a long, long time ago, they had that part of their theology correct. The mighty one, God, the Lord, he does know. He does know. He does. Every single thing you think of, all of us, and you wonder, does God even see that? Because if so, why doesn't he, you know? The Bible says, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he does know. He does know. He does see. He does. That assurance, even in the announcement of the judge, he is the one who has the right to call the whole earth before him. He is the one who defines what it is like, what he is like. He calls all of creation to be his witness. We sang about that in the song a moment ago. A creation, all creation sings, and around him rings the music of the spheres. Yes, indeed, creation speaks to the person of God. God is almighty, second. God is self-sufficient, second theological category. God is self 
sufficient. That is, God does not call us to worship him because he is needy or likes affirmation. He doesn't call us to worship saying, I'm feeling a little down right now. I need people to say nice things about me. Could you guys come for worship? That's not it. He is not a needy God. He has never been hungry. That's his point here in uh, verse, verse 12. He's never been hungry. He's never been thirsty. He has never needed anything. So, so press into this a little bit if you would. Uh, why did God create? Was he lonely? Was he bored? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternity. Were they looking around saying, hey, it's kind of like, let's go see a movie. Let's make earth. Well, that's going to be entertaining. Yeah, no kidding. No, God was not bored. He was not insufficient in himself. He was not needy when he created. He does not call you to worship him to give himself an ego rub. No, God is self-sufficient, content in himself, happy among in himself, the triune God, content, needing nothing. So God creates to display his glory. God calls you to worship him, to know him for your good, that you might see his glory and enjoy his presence. Not because he feels lonely without you. Can you imagine you personally, God saying, boy, I'd like you to come read a book to me. Kind of, you know, tuck me in. I'm, I'm we're kind of a needy. Oh, no, no, no. He is God who sits on the throne. We are invited to come to him as, as, as an act of his grace to us. Now, this text addresses all that. I don't need bulls from you. I don't need goats. I own it all already. If I were hungry, I wouldn't phone you up and say, hey, hungry tonight. Bring some, you know, bring dinner. No, no. Self-sufficient. Sufficient in himself. Whole. Third. I point to verse 16. God is just. You say, oh, God's fair. No, stop. Those words do not mean the same. They absolutely do not mean the same. We talk about fairness like, you know, sometimes we use them and think we're using them equally. Uh, That's a longer conversation probably than this moment. I see a big difference between fairness and justice. Justice is an absolute standard of what God is like. Fairness, honestly, if it's fair... Let me just ask this. Is it fair that my sin went to Jesus at the cross and his righteousness would cover me and I could go to heaven? Is that fair? Not really. I, get, I mean, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. That was fair. No, it wasn't fair, but it was just. Justice was satisfied. It's on the cross. You know, God's justice was satisfied. So there's justice. There's a difference. Here now, press into this with me again. Verse 16, to the wicked, God says, this is moral language. To call the wicked, wicked. To call evil, evil. God has the right to do that. We, we today, our generation is very uncomfortable using words like this. Have you noticed? Now, Ronald Reagan, of course, broke that when he said, you know, this evil empire or something like that. Man, people went, oh my goodness, who does he think he is? I think he means they're misunderstood. Well, no, he didn't mean that. He didn't mean misunderstood. Back in the world wars of old, some of you remember those days, people used very moral language to talk about wickedness and atrocities. 
Our generation, and again, I'm speaking of the generation older than 20 years old. Sorry if you're not. And I mean that because of, of, of 9-11, okay? Those of us who remember 9-11, we were, we, a whole bunch of our kids don't remember the planes crashing into the towers. Was it evil or just not nice? And our world did not know how to call it that. People knew how to say, well, that wasn't good. Uh, I read a, 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 I think it was a syndicated column in a newspaper. Wish I had cut it out. Somebody could search it and find it. There's got to be smarter than I am at searching such things. But there was a, an editorial um, commenting on this. Our generation has lost its ability to use moral language. And this was a, believe it or not, it wasn't intended to be. It was a theological statement. Here, let me tell you why. If you have a worldview that excises, removes God... Okay? Take him out of the picture. You have no right to call evil, evil, or wicked, wicked. Because to call something evil or wicked is to imply a fixed standard. And without God, you do not have one. All you have is I-M-H-O. In my humble opinion, it wasn't nice to kill 3,000 people. Like, well, thank you for that. Uh, who cares what you think? Well, in my humble opinion, it's not good to, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, keep things in the refrigerator that shouldn't be in the refrigerator. In my humble opinion, that isn't nice. But who am I to say? Well, God speaks. And God is able to say, because God does exist, he's able to say there's a dividing line. There are things that are right. There are things that are wrong. Remember Isaiah 1 just a few weeks ago. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. We just read that. It's, a, it's a, a switching of the price tags, and we're in the middle of it in our generation. Who are you to say something's wrong? Well, if, if God has spoken, then I'm speaking for him. And he said certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And our world is pressing on us to say, you have no right to call anything evil or anything sin. And I alone do not, because I am not a standard. Jay is not the standard. God is. I mean, do you hear where I'm going with all of that? God is able to say to the wicked. He doesn't mean those who just need a hug. No, wicked. They're rebelling against me. They've rejected truth. To the wicked, God says. If you're in the category of atheist or agnostic, um, I, I, people there often borrow, may I say steal, from the theists by talking about things as evil or wrong. Because if without a God, you cannot use that language. Because without a God, there is nothing wrong. I'll defend that later in the parking lot. Uh, we could talk about that. Without God, without a, without a theistic worldview, nothing is wrong. It's your opinion. I'd love to have you think about that. This text... It says that God is just. He can use moral language to the wicked, he says. God says, God is almighty, self-sufficient, just. My final category is merciful. He is merciful. He is merciful to us. God reveals himself to us at all. The fact that he does is an act of mercy. I mentioned that in verse 1. The fact that God, the Lord, speaks is mercy. He did not have to, but he did. The fact that he reveals what he is like tells us how to come to him. This is mercy indeed. That there is a courtroom scene rather than just a big explosion 
is mercy. He calls us to correct us. The fact that he says in verse um, 21, I'm correcting you. This is mercy. The fact that he offers to be to us a help in time of trouble in verse 15. This is mercy indeed. I will deliver you, God says, and you shall glorify me. Call on me. Today might be your day of trouble. Verse 16 might be to you today. Call upon me in a day of trouble, and I will deliver you. You shall glorify me. I will walk with you through that season of darkness. This is mercy, mercy indeed. Now, I want to think about these with you under my heading of responding to God's word in worship and obedience. A few moments ago, we sang, this is my father's world. And I, I never sing that song without remembering a couple of circumstances to uh, be specific, 26 years ago, November, and a whole number of things, and I know we're recorded and all of that, um, but, but I, was, I know that at that time I was looking at some circumstances in a person's life dear to me and, and being overwhelmed by the struggle that was there. Though the wrong seems off so strong, and yeah, I knew it. I felt it. Oh, God. What am I... This is now in my life to care for. What do I do here? I don't know this stuff. I'm not that smart. How do you fix that? I don't know. You ever felt this? How do I fix that? What what am I, going to wave a magic wand? Not so much. And I remember mulling that over. I remember where I was, and I remember the circumstances. And I remember the words of that song that we sang earlier. Um speaking theological truth to me. Though the wrong seems oft so strong, what is it? God is the ruler yet. Oh, yes, he is. God is the ruler yet. Whatever your difficulty or struggle, whatever thing you look at and say it's out of control, what can fix this? I don't know the purpose of God in all of those things that are broken, But I know that God still sits on the throne of this universe. I know he is still the mighty one, God the Lord. He still is in 2021 with whatever thing troubles you. He is still the mighty one, God the Lord to you. I remember mulling that over. God is the ruler yet. And then the song goes on. The battle is not done. Remember this? The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. And that is more theological, more theological formulations than most people who sing that song even catch. It is, it is speaking eschatologically, future. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, not only having paid for sin, but in that final day when, when evil is vanquished, when, when all, all the bad is gone, Jesus who died will be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. It's looking to that day when we are with the Lord and evil has been squashed, set aside, gone, not only from the world, but from you and me, cleansed. And earth and heaven will be one. That song speaks more theology than we typically think of when we sing it. And I remember 26 years ago mulling it over and saying, thank you, Lord, yes. Yes, you are bigger than this. You are bigger, and you will go with us. You will. 
God is almighty. He is self-sufficient. He is just. And he is merciful to us as evidenced in the cross of Jesus. I mentioned here we see in our uh, we see our human tendency to relate to, to reduce a relationship to God to externalism. Is that you today? You think of God as like a, the master of a checklist who just wants you to do these twelve things and I'll take you to heaven. Oh man, no, it's it's worse than that. He says, "Be perfect." Oh my friend, you need Jesus. There's not a list you could check off and keep them all and earn a path to God's heaven. You could not, nor could I. The gospel, Christ has done it all. All of these things point us to Jesus. They do. It presses to the cross. He has paid for my sin. He has paid for yours. Our call, the call to us is to believe him, to accept that offer of forgiveness, to trust Christ and him alone. All my eggs in that basket, all of them. I don't have a backup plan. Like, be nice just in case. Forget it. I can't even do that. There's no backup plan. It's Christ and him alone. All my eggs are there. It's Christ and him alone. Well, I say to you, this is my father's world. This is my father's world. We're going to sing a song today. We don't often at the end of a service, but we are today. I'd like us to sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And then I'll step back up and close us in prayer. Tim. Would you stand and join us,
I would love to pray for us as we head out. Our Father, we, we believe that song and we count on it. We count on you to be a faithful God to us. We have so many things in our lives, places where we don't understand. We don't know. We don't know what to do or to say or how to navigate. And Father, we need you. We do. And so we constantly call on you as faithful God to be near, to help, to give wisdom, to guide. Oh, Lord, do that for us. All the prayers going up even right now across this room, uh, asking for help. Oh, God, be, be to us that faithful God that you are. Thank you for the week ahead chance to, to be with family, friends, whether we're with a big group or, or very quietly with few. Uh, our Father, give us hearts of thankfulness because of you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.